sermon series today. Yes. Well, you might not be excited when I tell you what it's about, so reserve that excitement. But my plan for the next eight weeks originally was a series in Ephesians. I started working on that, um, and it was going well. But as I was watching the guys pouring the, the concrete this week, laying firm foundations, I remembered that I'd had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a series on the basics of theology. And see, right now when I say that word, yeah, (laughs) you get excited. Well, I was putting it off a little bit because, you know, I kind of see myself a bit more as a preacher than a teacher, if you know what I mean. And so, you know, I'm I'm not that academically inclined. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, but you know what I've discovered is when I've been doing all of my, my studies is that my faith grows. You know, even when it's really hard work studying, doing theology and stuff like that. And so, you know, I've always thought I'd love to do a series called Theology, the Basics. Um, actually, what did I call it? Theology for Ordinary People. That sounds good, hey. Theology, that's me. I'm an ordinary person. Theology for Ordinary People. We should really have a basic level of understanding about what we believe and why we believe it. You know, in some ways, Alpha does that, but it's kind of more targeted at the, the seeker. Whereas, so I'm going to bring this straight to you guys, you know, the believers. My source material is a textbook I used years ago by Alistair McGrath. He's a professor of theology, ministry, and education at King's College in London. Uh, he's a faculty member at Oxford University. Um, you know, he's done undergraduate work in mathematics and physics and chemistry. And I just say all those things to let you know that this guy knows what he's talking about, right? But he was once a declared atheist. And then one day he started to ask questions about life. And, he, and this is what he wrote. I was discovering that Christianity was far more intellectually robust than I had ever imagined I had some major rethinking to do, and by the end of November in 1971, my decision was made. I turned back on one faith and embraced another. Isn't it interesting how he calls atheism a faith? And throughout his life, he's contributed a lot of work to science and mathematics, but now very much so around theology and religion. He's, he's been known to debate Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, and he's quoted as saying, it's a little bit harsh, but he's quoted as saying that Dawkins is embarrassingly ignorant of Christian theology. You know, if you ever find your children reading Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, be sure you give them McGrath's book, The Dawkins Delusion, which I've never read, by the way, but I'm imagining it's good based on the other stuff I've read from him. So let me just start with this question. Well, what is theology? You know, if you had to define that word, it basically means talking about God. That's it. You know, we think it means professors and textbooks and big, thick commentaries. And while they do contribute towards it, what we do in your, sometimes in your small groups and stuff like that, when we try to um, understand God better is theology. So don't let that word put you off. I know as a teenager, it kind of did. But in reality, this is what I think theology is. Theology is a discussion around the core themes of God and, and our Christian faith. 
so that, so that we can better know and love him. And I believe that every Christian should do this. And, uh, and here's why I think that. Here's some, some reasons why. This is my introduction to this series. Why should Christians study theology? Number one is faith needs understanding to be resilient. You remember our faith in God? It's not a blind faith. It's based on good evidence and understanding and revelation. You know, we can't build that building out there without a solid foundation. or It won't last. It's the same thing for us. You might say, but isn't Jesus... And his teaching our foundation? And, and of course the answer is yes, absolutely. But do you know who Jesus is? You know, can you articulate a sound, biblical, orthodox doctrine of Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he both? What do we believe about him and why? And if you're a little bit unsure of some of those, of those things, it's okay. We're going to actually get to that in a few weeks' time. The point is that your faith will waver if you don't have a solid foundation and a strong theology of Jesus. You know, why follow the teachings of someone if you don't have a, a good understanding of who he is and therefore why you should actually do what he says? Our faith must rest on a firm foundation or it just won't be resilient. The weeds grow, the troubles come, the pressures build, temptations appear, our faith will crumble and I've seen it happen. This leads me to my second point about why we do theology is discipleship must include the intellectual. And I guess it's kind of the same as the first point in some ways, but it's good for us to be, uh, to be discipled in the disciplines of faith, you know, in the practice of faith, how we pray in the life and service of the church. And we talk about those things week after week, but there should be a deeper intellectual exploration of our faith, of Christianity. You know, there should be some study of, of church history. We all should know some church history because there is some important things in there that we should understand. We should understand how to read and interpret the, interpret the Bible well because there's a lot of really important principles that you, you can learn about how to do that. You know, we should understand the doctrines of Arminianism and Calvinism even. We really should. We should know how to articulate our belief in the Trinity. You know, when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and you say, well, I'm a Trinitarian, I believe in the Trinity, they're going to say to you, can you show me that word in the Bible? Can you guys tell me where that is in the Bible? Correct. It was a rhetorical question. You can't. It's not there. The word Trinity is not actually there. And yet, we hold that firmly, don't we? You know, the theology of, our, of a triune God and the, and, and the vast majority of Christianity does. But why is that? We're going to look at that too, coming up in future weeks. So, you, so far, hopefully you're thinking, I'm not going to miss anything. <laughs> the point is we should know these things. You know, what about heaven? What do we know about heaven? What do we know? What are the sacraments about? These are just some things that we're going to be speaking about. But we should know the subtle and not so subtle differences in doctrine that, that you can find in the universal church. You know, why, for example, do we Wesleyan Methodists hold really dearly the doctrine of egalitarianism? You know, that's where the genders are equal in responsibility and authority. 
but many other denominations, they hold fast to complementarianism where they, they, they put limits on female authority. Why, why is there a difference when, when you know, um, these different denominations say that they are true to, to the Bible and they hold the Bible in high regard you know, without error, and yet we've got these, the, these differences? Well, we should know why that is. I reckon I'll probably have to do a sermon one day on that topic. Yeah? Maybe I'll get a, a female to preach it. Even better. Just so you know, we, we Methodists see genders as equal and that females absolutely can have authority and teach and lead. And we hold that very dearly. Right, number three is this theology enriches our life because it transforms us. We not only learn the fundamental ideas of Christianity, theology, it gives us a lens. You know, it's not just up here. We see the world differently. When we, when we study theology, we begin to understand the brokenness of our world. We can see God's big picture. We see the big picture of the Bible, you know, from Garden of Eden to Garden of Eden, so to speak, and everything that's in between and why that is. You could say you're more enlightened. The idea, this idea comes through the scriptures when Paul says, you know, we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means we have to engage it. We have to engage our mind. You know, it's great when we engage our hearts and we worship God and we dwell in his presence. And I preach that stuff all the time, but we have to engage our minds. It's a constant wrestling that goes on. It's a bit like Jacob, how he wrestled with God. He didn't fight with God, by the way. There weren't, you know, there wasn't fisticuffs. That wasn't the kind of thing that was going on. It was really a holding on um, to better understand. When we, st- when, we, when we study and we increase our understanding, we can better answer the big, bigger questions in life. We see life, including the difficult parts, through this lens of faith, and it changes us. The more we recognize the nature of God and the more we allow the understanding to move from here to here, you know, it changes us. And of course, the journey from head to heart is essential because without that, it kind of doesn't really achieve anything. There's got to be a change that happens here. The purpose actually is a deeper holiness. Throughout history, Christian theology has made an appeal to three fundamental resources. The Bible, we always start there. Tradition, tradition's actually important, including the creeds and reason. The Bible is central to our understanding of God, but tradition is important because there's a stream of Christian teaching and interpretation that can be traced back all the way to the apostles and still important for us today. Many of our forefathers have wrestled with understanding and they have and they've had to defend the faith against weak theology and, and outside influence. And what they have learnt and implemented is important for us today. And so that's why we learn from the people who have come before us. And, and tradition, quite frankly, is biblical. You know, that's what the Israelites did. They passed down what they knew about God, what the traditions. The idea of hearing the wisdom from previous generations is essential and it saves us often from the same mistakes that others have made before. Anyway, that's my introduction to this series. Today, though, my first topic is creation. And I've got, what, you know, 10, 15 minutes to cover this. But you could study it for a lifetime. 
So I want to give you some very basic foundations of Christian doctrine around creation. Let me just quickly let you know, I'm not going to cover the, cover the interpretation of Genesis 1 to 2, you know, young earth, old earth. If you're interested in exploring that, you should. In fact, there's a great book that I've read uh, called Reading Genesis 1 to 2 that includes seven different, very evangelical, orthodox scholars slash theologians who talk about how they interpret Genesis 1 to 2 and then they all talk about each other's interpretation, if you know what I mean. It's a good read. It's a hard read. But I recommend it to you. You can get it on Kindle. It's worth doing. All right. Christian doctrine of creation, number one. And of course, this is, you're going to go, well, that's not very exciting, Nathan. I knew this one. God is the creator and sustainer of, of all things. But we have to start there. That's an important Christian doctrine. It explains our existence. And it also explains the position of God as creator and sovereign over all. It also brings us to understanding our relationship to God and our place before him. With God as creator, the universe and our part in that universe actually has purpose and meaning and a basis for how we live our lives. It's not random. The world is not just by chance. Otherwise, we have no real reason, do we? With God as creator, we all have a reason. Number two, creation reveals the establishment of order over chaos and something out of nothing. A good biblical illustration is the potter that takes a formless lump of clay and works it into a recognizable, usable, and ordered structure. And we could say that about us in a way. We're kind of a lump of clay that God molds, right? But the illustration does break down a little bit because God didn't start with anything. He started with nothing. And this is the point that no atheist can explain. How did everything we see in the universe, including the way everything is finely tuned, including the complexity of our world and our human bodies, come from nothing? Because science can't explain that part. I've even heard Richard Dawkins suggest some kind of alien thing happened to planet life here. Like willing to explore the idea of a weird alien thing, but not consider God. It takes a lot of faith to believe we, our planet, our sun and our solar system and our universe came from nothing. Now that's an amazing faith, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't take much faith to see there's an intelligent designer at work and that designer reveals a creative God, one who actually values beauty and design. A God who is a master builder, an engineer and an architect all in one. A, a God who obviously values purpose and planning and order. That's what we get out of the theology of creation. From creation, we get a picture of the nature of God. He's not boring or dull. He loves grandeur. He's the God of wonders. He's a cosmic architect. His expression through creation points to a God who loves beauty. Number three is a distinction must be drawn between God and his creation. Paul reminds us in Romans that humans, we have a tendency to worship the created things over the creator. Here's what he said in Romans 1. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. 
Now, I don't think Paul was talking about some kind of extreme environmentalism here, although you could probably put them in that category if you wanted to, but all of us, he's talking to all of us, we have a tendency to worship things, you know, that we worship food. I tend to do that. And buildings and the stuff of the world instead of the creator of the world. The fourth thing is we're gifted creation to use and simultaneously commanded to care for it. Genesis 1 talks about creation as being for our use and blessing to sustain us, but nowhere does God say that we should exploit his creation. Our view of creation should be the same as God's, and he clearly said at the end of every six days, what did he say about his creation? It was good. So that's, if it's good, we better treat it like it's good. God says, this is mine and it's good. I'll give it to you to use, but it's good. You better treat it like that. That's the way we should see it. Actually, in Genesis 2, yes, it's the Garden of Eden, but I think this still applies. The Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to what? To tend and to watch over it. You know, there was a mandate for mankind to tend and watch over. And tend, I think it means, yeah, we worked... We can work the creation for our benefit, but watch over it means we care for it. Our theology of creation should lead to being good stewards of creation, not because we worship the creation, but because we worship the creator of that good creation. Stewardship means we use what God has given us in a responsible, one could say sustainable way. We don't take for granted the blessings that God has given us, yeah? All right, number five. Humans were created in the image of God. And this is very important. Very, very important. From the beginning of history, people have wondered about their place in the great scheme of things. You know, why are we even here? What is our destiny? What is the, the meaning of my existence? These are good questions. And I think we all ask them. The doctrine of creation provides a framework for answering that question. One of the fun fundamental themes of creation is that humans are created in the image of God. Let's just check it. Genesis 1. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's a very important verse. It opens the way to a right understanding of, of us, of, of humanity, of our nature, and most importantly, our place in the world. This is also why every person on earth should be considered valuable and significant. Every person is created in God's image. Every human being. It's important to be clear from the outset, we are not created to be God. We are not God. There is no divine attribute to us. There is, however, something very important and valuable that stands us apart from all the other, cre all the other creatures that God created. We humans, every one of you here today, bear the image of God. I mean, isn't that amazing? Some may say that this gives us a, a privileged position within creation, and, and that may be true, but please don't miss the important point that it also elevate, elevates humans to a responsibility towards the world we live, to treat the world like God would, including each other. In fact, I would say that we are accountable to God for that role he has given us. Being created in God's image is important. It means we have a distinct and special relationship with him. We have a very real capacity to relate to God in the, in the way that he relates. 
you know, how we feel in our emotions and our ability to love and care and show compassion, our desire for relationship, they're all qualities that God has given us in order that we can relate to him on a very deep and personal way. The way we relate to each other is also God's image in us, and therefore that is the basis from which we relate to him, albeit he, is, he has authority over us, of course. Augustine said this, The image of the creator is to be found in the rational or intellectual soul of humanity. The human soul has been created according to the image of God in order that it may use reason and intellect in order to apprehend and behold him. In other words, we've been created with the resources and the intelligence to find him and relate to him. And often we find that way by, by even just reflecting on creation. There's a physicist and a theologian called uh, John Polkinghorne, and he points out that some of the most beautiful patterns thought up by mathematicians, you know, my brain doesn't go there with maths, I'm just going to say that, but, but they tell me there's beauty in maths. Is there anyone here that's that way inclined? There's a few. This genius <laughs> said that the patterns they find in, are found in the structure of the physical world around us. He says, Our minds seem to be perfectly shaped to understand the deep patterns of the world. He argues that there, there seems to be a resonance, like a harmonization between the ordering of the world and the capacity of the human mind to discern and, and actually represent it. What he's saying is that this points to a creator and that the creator chose to make us in his image. Well, today, God is speaking to the world through his creation. This is what the psalmist says. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. You know, if you're a creative, a creative person here today, you were probably inspired when you just look up and around. What you're seeing is a very creative God. Day after day, they, the creation, continues to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. C.S. Lewis says, there's a God-shaped gap within us, within every person, which only God can fill. Well, if God is absent from your life, then you have a gap. You'll, have a, you'll experience a longing, which, which is for God. And sadly, our world misreads that longing. You know, maybe it's accidental, perhaps it's deliberate, as a longing for things within the world. We go back to what Paul said. We start worshipping the creation. Those things never satisfy if we are made for God, then there is nothing else that will satisfy. This God-given sense of belonging provides a key to answering the great questions of life which humanity has always wrestled and continues to do. There is an answer. We are made to be in relationship with him. 
But that relationship is only possible by someone who is right with God, someone who is without sin. That is why the Bible says the way to the Father is only through Jesus because he was the one who was on this earth and was without sin and he willingly took ours from us so that we could be with him. In other words, Jesus fills the gap. That relationship with Jesus is for everyone who will repent and believe. If you're unsure about God, creation is pointing you to him. If you're unsure about God, you don't have to just listen to my words. You can walk out into creation, ask God, reveal yourself to me, and you will see him. If you're unsure about God, but today you you feel like you want to fill that gap, I encourage you and invite you to do it. To do it today. Fill that gap with Jesus. This is why you were made. He wanted you here because he wanted a relationship with you. Every person here. So this morning we're going to pray. And if you want to make that decision today to worship the creator, then I invite you to do that. Let's close our eyes. I invite you to pray after me, just quietly in your heart. God, we see you all around us. We see the work of your hands. We look into the sky at night and, we, and it's, it's the God of wonders. You're beyond our galaxy. We can barely fathom how big and mighty and grand you are. And yet you created me out of love and because you wanted me to be in relationship with you. So this morning, God, I open my heart and my life. I turn to you. I surrender to you. I ask that you forgive all that I have done against you. I believe in who you are. And I commit my life to you. The created, now connected to the creator. The way you wanted it to be. We thank you, Lord, that you made us. We thank you for life. We thank you for this beautiful world that you've, you've built for us. <laughs> Help us, Lord, to care for it well. Thank you, Lord, that it sustains us and provides for us. You are sovereign over all. And we, we honor and respect you today. And God, I pray you help us to live the way you want us to live. You are the God of wonders.